everybody doing today? Good? Thumbs up? Thumbs down? Doing pretty good? All right. How you doing, man? Long time no see. I'm glad you're here. Very glad you're here. Well, Greg Stryker was supposed to come here and play his guitar and play like three songs, but Greg Stryker's girlfriend flaked out because she said the storm was too bad so she wouldn't drive him here. So that's what happens when you're a guitar player and your girlfriend says no. So that's what we're dealing with. But we got plenty of things to talk about today. We're going to talk about peer pressure. We're also going to talk about um, the spectrum of people and how they create a global view of reality. We're going to go into some psychology so you can figure out some things about some of the people you may have experienced firsthand in your life. And so we're going to go around and I'm going to hand this out and we're going to figure this out together as a team. Anybody ever have any psychology classes in high school or in college at all? Okay, cool. So you guys know about personality disorders? Must have heard that term before, right? So a person that has like antisocial personality disorder, what's their major issue? Well, they're criminals, right? The real deal criminal, the person that has no empathy. Charles Manson has antisocial personality disorder, which means that even when Charles Manson is not on drugs, he will steal your shit and hurt you. That's what Charles Manson does. And so taking drugs is just part of his doing whatever he's not supposed to do. If you tell Charles Manson don't take LSD, he'll take LSD. You tell Charles Manson don't take heroin, he'll take heroin. You say Charles Manson don't kill people, he'll kill people. He does everything he's not supposed to do. He's an extreme example of an antisocial personality disorder. Is that making sense? So remember, for every extreme there's going to be another extreme. Remember that, that movie called Unbreakable? with Bruce Willis. Anybody ever seen that movie before? So the guy had a theory. If there are people that had really fragile bones, there should be other people that what? Could survive a really bad accident, right? So then that guy actually had those really bad accidents going down trying to figure out who survived. So we're going to look at different extremes, right? So when people deal with reality, they have, they have two different ways of dealing with reality. They have external locus of control or internal locus of control. So what does that mean? That means that the person's belief system, for example, a person that has this external locus of control, that individual believes that his or her outcomes are caused by fate, luck, or other external circumstances. It's everyone else's fault. It's not my fault at all. So why are these people hard to help? If a person had this way of looking at reality and they had three DUIs, why would they be difficult to help to make them understand they had an alcohol problem? Thank you. You're exactly right. So I had a guy that had three DUIs, and he told me with a straight face, none of them are my fault. So I said, go ahead, I'm listening, right? So Joe came from a very wealthy family, and he had a really big trust fund in a three-story house in West Bloomfield. And so I said, Joe, I'm not understanding. What are you talking about? You got three DUIs, and none of these DUIs was your fault. He goes, yeah, let me explain to you. He goes, the first DUI was my girlfriend's fault. I go, explain. He goes, I was at the bar drinking shots. And she told me, don't drink shots at the bar because you get too drunk and you act really stupid. So I was having shots at the bar, and she yelled at me, and we got in this really big fight. And she left me at the bar by myself. And I said to myself, well, I have to go over to her house to try to talk to her to get her to understand that my friends had come up in from out of town. And of course I'm going to do shots with them because if I don't, it'll make them angry. So I was driving to her house to explain why I was drunk, I got pulled over for a DUI. I'm like, wow. Okay, so that was her fault. So explain DUI number two. He goes, oh, that's Homeland Security's fault. I go, no shit. 
He goes, yeah, let me tell you what happened with Homeland Security. He goes, I was drinking at the bar, and I always drink at the bar. And this time I leave the bar, and it's 2.15, and the police are staking out the, the parking lot. So I'm thinking, I'm pretty much cool. I'm going to drive through. And they pull me over for speeding and give me a breathalyzer, and I fail it. And I said, what are you guys doing out here? I drink here all the time. There's never a cop out here. And the cop says to me, oh, yeah, by the way, we got a Homeland Security grant. This is actually true. And they gave a grant block of money to Oakland County and Wayne County and Macomb County to pay for overtime DUI enforcement. I was like, really? He goes, yeah, so I, the second DUI is not my fault. That's the fault of Homeland Security. I'm like, no shit. So tell me about the third DUI that wasn't your fault. I goes, that one's really easy. That one was my parents' fault. I'm like, holy fuck, tell me all about that. He goes, well, I was drinking while I was on probation on my second DUI, and I was drinking beer up in my bedroom. He's got a bedroom suite with a jacuzzi in the, in the uh, shower and all that kind of stuff. Really, really nice, right? And so he's getting drunk in his bedroom, and his parents are like, you cannot drink in this house. You're on probation. You better leave this house. So he said, well, I took my parents' keys, and I drove off to go to a hotel room, and I got my third DUI. And if they weren't yelling at me while I was drinking, I wouldn't let the house to get drunk. I'm like, wow. I go, Joe, before I do your evaluation for court, is there anything else that you'd like to tell me? He goes, yeah, I've been thinking about this pretty deep. I'm like, well, cool. What have you been thinking about? He goes, Raj, if I ran the world, it would be a perfect place. Oh my motherfucker, we got a personality disorder here. You see what I'm trying to say? This person could not respect or see his own flaws in any of these DUI arrests. It was everybody else's fault but Joe's. Um, not to be mean, but Joe didn't do too well. You know what I'm saying? Because he doesn't see any reason to change. So look down here. That person is more psychotic. See that sad face right there? They operate from denial, projection, and from delusions. They're, they're looking at, their view of reality is based on delusions. They're not really looking at reality very accurately. So nothing is my fault, says Joe, so I don't need to change anything. And that's not healthy. So what's the other extreme of that? The other extreme is called internal locus of control. This person believes that his or her outcomes are caused by his or her personal decisions, failures, and efforts. It's all my fault. And so everything I do goes wrong. And so a person like this, you go over to their house and you spill milk on their table, and they say, it's the fault of my, me and my table. If I had a better table, you wouldn't have spilled your milk. It doesn't make any fucking sense. They're at a red light, and they're stopped, and they're right where they're supposed to be, and a car runs through that red light and hits them, and they go, if I wasn't there, they wouldn't have hit me. But you were there because you were supposed to be. You were at a red light. You were doing the right thing. They drove through. Yeah, but I shouldn't have been there. Has anybody ever experienced people that are on either side of the spectrum? Please say you have a little bit of a recollection of these people. So the neurotics, the ones that say it's all my fault, they're easier to work with. And why is that? They have better self-reflection. Yeah, you're exactly right. And by having that, they're able to look at their role in things. And then your job working with someone like that is making them recognize that, guess what? The center part. See where it says healthy in that green there? Healthy people operate from this standpoint. Sometimes it's my fault. Sometimes it's someone else's fault, and sometimes it's a combination of faults. That's accurate. That's realistic. And so as you begin to abuse drugs and alcohol, you might tend to go to one extreme or the other, right? And the goal is to, if you're a neurotic person, they say to themselves, everything I do is wrong, so I'm better off doing nothing. I am paralyzed. Is that making sense? So reality is not optional. What about borderline personality disorder people? Where do they operate from? 
Lots of fun to be in a, You want to date them for about two weeks maximum. They're lots of fun. You get someone with borderline personality disorder, and the first couple dates that you go on, you're their soulmate. The stars have a line, and you are absolutely the perfect person in their life. Nothing you do can go wrong, right? And then on your third or fourth date, when you show up five minutes late for the date, they'll say, you're the fucking devil. You hate me. You don't love me at all. You're trying to betray me and destroy my life. Like, whoa, fuck, I thought I was your soulmate. That going from highs to lows like that, going from it's everyone else's fault to it's all my fault and swinging back and forth from those emotional highs and lows, those are borderline personality disorders. Let me give you an example of this, okay? We're going to break this down in this fancy book called the DSM-4. It has every mental health illness known to man in this book, okay? So if you have any kind of mental illness, it's in this book. So we're going to talk about a narcissist, right? Tiger Woods has narcissistic personality disorder, but first we're going to do borderline, okay? So a person that swings from one extreme to the other has a pervasive pattern of instability of interpersonal relationships, self-image, and affects. And so they have a marked impulsivity, and number one, they have frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. So do not abandon these people. If you break up with them, they're going to show up at your doorstep because it's not over until they say it's over. People, please tell me you've met someone like this at least once. I had her in high school. She was a lot of fun, I said, for two weeks. Um, two, a pattern of unstable and intense impersonal relationships characterized by alternating between extremes of idealization and devaluation. I hate you or I love you. There's no gray areas in between. Identity disturbance, markedly and persistently unstable self-image or sense of self. That person doesn't know who they are. Impulsivity in at least two areas that are potentially self-damaging, such as spending, sex, uh, drug abuse, reckless driving, binge eating, etc. Number five, recurrent suicidal behavior, gestures, or threats, or self-mutilating behavior. These are oftentimes the girls with the black lipstick that cut their themselves with the razor blades a little bit on their forearms. Um, affective instability due to a marked reactivity of mood. They can be triggered by anything and get really happy over it or get really sad over it. If their meal comes to them on time, they can go really, really happy. If the meal's five minutes late, they can have a complete breakdown. Um, chronic feelings of emptiness. Inappropriate intense anger or difficulty controlling their anger and frequent displays of temper. Constant anger or recurrent physical fights. Anybody ever met a person that has borderline personality disorder? So now you know what we're talking about, right? They swing from one extreme to the other. Let's go back to the healthy thing, though. So healthy people operate from a standpoint where they're self-reflexive but don't blame themselves for everything. So how about on the back, those defense mechanisms? Need somebody to read. What are the defense mechanisms that healthy people actually use? Need a volunteer. Fortune favors the bold. Thank you, Pete. Altruism, constructive service to others that brings pleasure, self-esteem, and personal satisfaction. That Teresa hated poverty and did something about it. Is that making sense? So if you're dealing with a lot of bullshit, one of the ways you can make yourself feel better is by finding some place where you can have a positive outlet making a difference. Even if it's pouring that bucket ice on top of your head, that seems to be really popular right now. But finding a way that you can kind of serve your, other, your fellow man in a constructive way. How about the next one? Anticipation. Realistic planning for future discomfort and consequences. Yeah. Successful people plan things out, analyze and plan ahead to be successful. So if I have a court date, what should I do if I'm using anticipation? Should I just ignore my court date and not show up? Or is that a really bad idea? Really bad idea, right? So what's a really good idea? Going to court, having 
completed some kind of program, going to AA, right? Having a written relapse prevention plan, showing up there with a plan. Is that making sense? Having things written down, setting up goals for yourself, marking your 30 days sober on a calendar. People that are successful tend to, you know, plan things out. How about number three? Humor, pointing out the absurdity inherent in, in any event. Humor that gives pleasure to others, which points out the funny or ironic aspects of a situation, thus taking away the stress of the situation and disarming it. Why is humor a healthy way of dealing with anger and stress and disappointment? Doesn't it give you a little bit of control over it? I mean, if you're making fun of it, are you really responding to it, or you actually got a little bit of control over it. You see a lot of really healthy people use humor to deal with reality, right? Is that making sense? Dalai Lama is a very funny guy. He's also very spiritual. Okay, how about the next one? Identification, the unconscious modeling of oneself upon another person's character and behavior. Real Christians tend to be Christ-like in their actions, attitudes, and behaviors. What are you guys' thoughts on that one? If you're trying to deal with this world and you have all kinds of stress on yourself, isn't it kind of cool in a way to find someone that you respect and try to emulate what's good about that person? Is that making sense? Look, nobody's perfect, but a lot of people that we've met in our lives or we've heard about through history might have had some really good character traits that you want to emulate or be part of. And so you find someone that you really respect and say, here's the area I want a copy of that person, right? Is that making sense? How about the next one there, Pete? Interjection. Identifying with some idea or object so deeply that it becomes a part of that person. Twelve-step people interject the twelve steps into their lifestyle. Military people incorporate the military code of conduct into their civilian lifestyle to be successful. Yeah, and Christians incorporate the uh, Ten Commandments into their lifestyle. Why is it a good idea to have a, a roadmap to how to live? instead of kind of just doing it aimlessly. Why would it be a good idea to have this like formula? Like, here, here's a formula that works for other people. I'm going to use that formula for myself. Why is that good? Yeah. What works for others will probably work for you, right? So instead of reinventing the rocket ship, you can use the one that's already working. That's my philosophy. I meet a lot of people, and oftentimes they'll say, I want to be sober. I want to stop using drugs and alcohol. And I'll say, okay, well, what do you want to do about that? Well, I'm going to um, use my willpower. Well, why don't you go to some 12-step meetings? No, fuck that, I'm not going to do that. How about going to some counseling? No, fuck that, I don't want to do that. How about developing a healthy exercise lifestyle? Fuck that, I don't want to do that. All right, so here's the deal. People have invented rocket ships that work. They've been documented. They fly to and from the moon all the time. And so when you see this rocket ship working, imagine the arrogance you have to have to say, I really appreciate the rocket ship that you have, but I'm going to invent my own because I want to see if I can make it work on my own. And a lot of people with regards to alcoholism and addiction die crashing their own rocket ships. Is that making sense? So it works for other people, like you said, it's probably going to work for you. And what fails for others is probably going to fail for you. Not 100% of the time, but a wise person doesn't go down the road to figure out what's down there. A wise person asks the man or woman that's coming back down that road, hey, that road of heroin addiction, what's down that path? Oh, i got to tell you about it. Multiple felony charges, people that are going to betray and lie to you, horrible withdrawals, oh, I got that, okay. Not going to head down that path. And that's what's called being wise, by learning by other people's mistakes. Now, how about the next one, the sublimation? Sublimation, mental transformation of negative emotions or instincts into positive actions, behavior, or emotions. Take lemons and turn them into lemonade. If addiction has destroyed your life, use your knowledge of addiction to help others avoid suffering. Why is that a good idea? Anybody have an, a thought or impression why it's a good idea to 
take those negative experiences and instincts and channel them to something positive. You guys recall who John Walsh is? The guy used to be on America's Most Wanted, the host. Do you guys know anything about his story, about what happened to him? He had an 11-year-old kid, and the kid was kidnapped and raped by this pedophile child killer and, and left dead. And so he discovered his kid dead. For a lot of people, what would happen, they would break down, fall into addiction, depression, right? Completely fall apart. So what did this man decide to do when he found out that his kid was raped and killed? How did he handle that pain and that, and that horror? So I want to put a TV show together so that bad people can get fucking caught and they can be stopped from doing that kind of shit. Trying to make the world a better place. Is that making sense? You guys know about my story when my friend Jerry died of a heroin overdose and I made up my mind. I'm so, okay, here's the deal. Now this shit is personal. Addiction walks into my life. It kills my friend and walks away. No, this is not over yet. Fuck no. There's a score to be settled. And by the way, for every person that I hear about that dies from an overdose, I put a sincere effort into getting 10 people sober. I need a 10 to 1 kill ratio to win this war against addiction. That's my philosophy. That's how I operate. That's what keeps me motivated. So when I do an intervention in this room, and somebody walks in here, and their, their main goal is to not go to rehab and not stop using, sorry, but that's not the plan. You are going to be sober, and we're going to be part of that. Is it making sense? If someone beat up your best friend on the playground, do you go back and French kiss that guy? Please say no. No, what are you supposed to do? Break his nose. If somebody hurts someone that you care about, if it's addiction that hurts somebody that you care about, if it's your parent, if it's your loved one, if it was your boyfriend, if it was your girlfriend, if it was one of the guys that you used to hang with and he got killed by addiction, isn't it, not to be mean, but isn't it on some level insulting to still use the drug that killed somebody that you cared about? you got to go deep about this. You know, what do you want to be known for? We all have a legacy in this world. And so, you know, at some point, I, I promise you this, you don't want to be laying in the casket and everyone's talking about what you could have been, what you should have been, what you would have been. That's a bad place to be. And you also want to be sitting in a jail cell, people talking about, oh, she had all this potential. Oh, he had all this potential. Now she's sitting in a county jail for one year. We live in a really weird system that really doesn't care about people. It's a really mean system based on the ideology of punishment. And 70% of the people that are in jail or in prison right now are diagnosed alcoholics and addicts, and they could have been helped and reached at many other points along the process before they ended up in jail or prison. Is that making sense? Yes or no? Okay. Please try to incorporate these defense mechanisms into your life. Please try to incorporate altruism, anticipation, humor, identification, introjection, and sublimation. All right? So we're going to go around and introduce ourselves. If we have a drug of choice, please say what it is. Definitely want to mention your clean time. Get, you know, your credit for that. And then give us a highlight in the past week. And Keith, you know the drill, so why don't you go ahead and start us off. All right. Uh, I'm Keith Wright. Uh, drug of choice is uh, Molly alcohol or LSD. I've uh, been sober for about a month, maybe two. Yeah, fantastic. Well done. Glad you're here, man. Tell us about your highlight in the past. We get a lot of things going on, a lot uh, of good things going on, actually. Yeah, I uh, just played Upward Festival. Uh, it was a good experience. I, uh, me and my band played for 15,000 people. Yeah, tell them who your band is. Uh, our name is called The Olifies Here. You guys have a website, too, right? Uh, yeah, we have Facebook? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that good shit. You guys should check them out. They're really good. Yeah. Starting to get noticed, so I'm liking that. Great. So tell us what's bad about Keith when he's drinking. What happens to this poor guy? Mm, they do 
dumb shit. Okay. Is it possible you might have an alcohol allergy? Uh, yeah, highly possible. Okay. Has anybody ever said something like, Keith, when you drink, you tend to act a lot different? Yeah. All right. A like a Jekyll and Hyde thing? Mm, not that extreme. Okay. I just like to break shit. Okay. So what are the odds of you being arrested if you're not drinking? Uh, a lot lower. I mean, it still happens often. <laughs> but a lot lower. Yeah. All right. Glad you're here, man. Thank you. Pete, how about you? I'm Pete. Alcohol's drug of choice. Seven months now. Fantastic, Pete. All done. And highlight for this week, I found out I'm getting a raise. That's great. Good for you. So same question as Pete. What are the odds of you being arrested if you're not, as for Keith, what are the odds of you being arrested if you're not drinking? Slim to none. Right. Okay. Same kind of alcohol allergy? Oh, yeah. All right. Everybody's different. Glad you're here, man. How about you, sir? Um, Josh, <clears throat> around nine months. I don't even know exactly. Fantastic. Nine um, months, man. Well done. Um, What's your drug of choice? Uh, pharmaceuticals. And Such as? Well, it was just Xanax mostly until my accident, then I just got all those opiates. What'd they give you? Fentanyl. Fentanyl, the patch? Yeah. No way. Okay. I never took the patch, you just sucked on it. That's not how you're supposed to use it, though. Does it say suck as needed? <laughs> no. no, it doesn't. All right, what's bad about doing fentanyl like that? Um, well, I didn't do it for that long, so I after my accident. Who taught you how to do that, by the way? Yes. I hate that Google. Everything is available so easy, right? Like, how do I abuse this fentanyl patch? Just Google it, and it'll tell you exactly how to misuse anything. Yeah. All right. So did the effects have you concerned at all, or using opiates have you concerned at all? Yeah, actually. Then I, I kind of just quit myself like, way earlier than they recommended. Okay. And then, yeah, I got off of that for a while. I was only wasn't taking any pain medication. All right. How are your pain levels now? Pretty bad still. Sometimes it's always achy. Alright. So how are you handling that kind of pain? I just handle it, I guess. Not All right. really I, do. I recommend Motrin 800s that come from the pharmacist. For some reason, they really seem to work with pain. Now, they always still tell you the over-counter ones just take four 200s that equals 800. It's the same. It's not the same. I don't know why, but I live this stuff firsthand with all kinds of injuries. The prescription Motrin seems to really make a difference and lower your pain level. And the stuff over-the-counter doesn't seem to do shit. So please consider that in the future. Any of your friends been taken away from you because of drug or alcohol abuse? Yeah, a few of them. All right. And what happened to them if you feel comfortable talking about it? Um, one of my friends over some heroin. One of my friends was Ashley, I think. Okay. And then one was just alcohol driving. So what are your thoughts about Oxy and heroin? Um, not so good, really. Okay. That's kind of why I stopped, really. So quickly, when I still needed them at the time. All right. That was my friend died from it. And just, yeah. What kind of impact did it have on his family, you think, him passing away like that? Uh -huh. Well, I was not too good. Were you close with his mom and dad at all? I was close with his dad. Not that close, but I knew him quite a lot. Right. My mom really didn't know. She, didn't, she wasn't around, really, but she was there at the funeral. Yeah. Usually what happens is they'll get divorced within two years after he dies. They're both end up blaming each other for his death, and they'll say, you should have done this, or you should have done that, and then the family gets fractured. It almost like adds insult to injury, right? So I'm glad you're sober. Glad you're here, man.
honored guest. How you doing? You just had a baby. Congratulations for that. That's fucking awesome. Good for you. Um, my name's Rachel, and drug of choice is heroin. Been sober for like five months now. That's great. Good for you. The applause for the five months as well. Tell us about the experience of having your first baby. It must have been something special. I mean, you gave life. You, I mean, you created life. I guess. Everyone has babies. Like, Everyone? Keith, do you have any babies? Right Keith, how many babies you had? <laughs> you, you, women get full respect from me, man. I think they kind of minimize what women go through when they have a child. Oh, yeah. 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 Me and <laughs> Keith would fall apart. We couldn't life. do it, right, Keith? Nope. Boyfriend was in the room in the corner, like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, and I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was really. How weird. long are you in labor for? Um, well, like my water broke and I didn't really know, so okay. I didn't go for like a day. Wow. And like the next day. I went in. It was a Friday. I left my house around like six o'clock. Yeah. I drove myself to the hospital. You're kidding me! No. You drove yourself to the hospital. Yeah. Where was your boyfriend? He was with me. I just can't stand his driving. That's hysterical. <laughs> I'm trying to visualize this. So there you are, completely pregnant, ready to have a baby, and you're driving yourself to the hospital, yeah. and he's riding shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> it was really funny. My parents were like, you're really driving to the hospital? I was like, yeah, because... I trust I'm myself. Gonna, yeah, exactly. He <laughs> might crash the car? I was like, I'm going to get there in <laughs> quite quick time. <laughs> but um, I got there, and then it was probably like seven hours or something before I had him. Okay. I was only pushing for like 30 minutes. That's impressive. Yeah. He had some water in his lungs or some fluid in his lungs. Okay. I don't know from what they said. It was probably from me waiting yeah. after my water broke. Okay. But the baby's healthy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't well, it cool that you were sober at the end of this pregnancy? Isn't that important? Yeah, definitely. How was his weight? Uh, six pounds, ten ounces. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the experiences that you've been through. How do you feel about being sober now after the pregnancy? Because obviously the pregnancy was a motivator to be sober, and I respect that. But what about now? What's going to motivate you now to leave the heroin alone? Um, just my friends that have passed from it. I've had, like, a lot more people in my life, like, okay. call to it and stuff. And don't you have plans for the future now, too? Mm hmm So if you were to start doing heroin, what happened to those plans that you have for going back to school and everything? Oh, that would not happen. <laughs> That's yeah. honest, isn't it? Yeah. Heroin's remarkable as a drug in how it prevents people from reaching their full potential. Yeah. Yeah. Some drugs you really can't even use even a little bit socially. There's no heroin parties, right? There's no heroin cocktail hour, right? And there's, I, as far as I know, there's no pro-heroin uh, website, and there's marijuana websites that are pro-marijuana, but as far as I know, and I identify one website that says heroin is the future. You need to start shooting this stuff as soon as possible because that's what everyone's going to be into. And even the people that use it know that it's wrong. One of those weird drugs where once you're into it, you're like, man, this is not really a good idea, but now I'm trapped, right? Yeah. Oh, really glad that you're here. Thank you. Congrats on the baby. That's fantastic. Tanya, it's always good to see you. Me too. <laughs> um, I'm Tanya. Um, I'm a drug of choice in marijuana. 
four months. Fantastic. So how does it feel? It feels good. Um, my brain seems like it's going back to normal. Okay. Isn't that important? Yeah, we well, got a really good brain, but you were putting poison in it. Yeah. I kept saying, please don't put poison in Tanya's brain, and you're like, oh, I'll get to that later. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about dabs and wax. People don't understand about dabs and wax. What's different about smoking that than smoking regular marijuana? Um, it's more like potent, and it's like you like twice as high, and like one dab is like worth like. I'd say at least. Yeah, they call it marijuana crack because it get you so high. Yeah. I've had clients that actually sat in a chair for eight hours after smoking dabs and just couldn't move. They become catatonic. Butane. Yeah, there's butane in there too. And this withdrawals from dabs and wax too. When you start smoking that stuff and you and you run out, you're gonna feel really uncomfortable. And some people have actually had you know, heroin type withdrawals and vomiting, unable to sleep at night, no appetite, and it can last three and four days. Yeah, I look great in the shower. Yeah, you got fortunate. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, my highlight is I started school again. Fantastic. That's great. Where are you going to school at? I'm going to Nice. Yeah, it feels, it feels good. How many classes? Four right now, just one. Okay. I just so what are you going to do if some guy, you guys have obviously a break between classes as you're walking in, and some guy goes, hey, man, I want to smoke a joint with you. How are you going to handle that question? <laughs> I'll be like, no. Are you, are you going to smile and say no, or are you going to say, like, fuck no? I'll be like, fuck no. Thank you. I think a fuck no is more effective than just a regular no. <laughs> and why is it a bad idea for you to smoke my pot right now, particularly? Because I'm on To where? Jail. Okay, what'd you call it? The Cow. All right. So, yeah, I can't. We don't want you in jail. Yeah. Jails needs to be, is this valuable space for real criminals, not someone like you that has a marijuana problem? Yeah. Isn't it weird that their solution for you smoking pot on probation isn't to give you therapy or inpatient treatment, but to put you in a jail cell? Yeah, that's, that's a little messed up. So what's supposed to happen while you sit in jail? Are you supposed to have like an epiphany to go, oh my God, marijuana is not my friend, I should stop doing this? No, because if I were in jail, I'd probably be like, when I get out, I'm probably going to smoke again. What are most of the ladies in jail going to say to you when you tell them that you're in jail for violating probation? They're going to say, fuck, man, when you get out, fuck those motherfuckers. You can have scum probation, smoke weed, fuck them. Yeah. Get your medical card. Yeah, so you hear bullshit all day long from people that are really not good at making choices. Because it's not being mean, right? I'm not being mean when I say this, but I was told this by a person that did prison time. He said, prison is for losers. He said that to me. I'm not saying that about people that are in prison. I'm just understand. And I said, why is that? He goes, because if you're good at crime, you don't go to prison. It's for the ones that are bad at crime, the ones that are bad at getting high. That was his perspective, not mine. I'm just telling you what he said, right? So you don't want to be sitting in jail with a bunch of failed criminals, right? right. With a bunch of really bad ideas. Right. You need to be in a setting like you're supposed to be, in a college setting, learning important things and getting your life back on track. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. Glad you're here. Thank you. Honored guest. Um, Trisha, drug of choice is mostly heroin. Um, three weeks sober, Fantastic. Two weeks sober. Fantastic, Trisha. Well done. Like your... Uh,
bangles too. Those are cool. Give us a highlight, Trisha, besides the clean time. I don't know. I haven't really done anything this week. Okay. Are you feeling better? I guess so. Are you sleeping better? No. I'm asking. Kind of, yeah. Is mom and dad happier? Less stressed out? I don't know. Okay. Seems like it. Tell everybody who might be thinking about trying heroin just one time, please tell them why you think that's a bad idea. Right, we discussed that, right? Is it sustainable for most people? Can most people manage a heroin habit? It's amazing, isn't it, right? Yeah, it's a really unforgiving drug. Are people that sell heroin particularly nice? No. Right. Follow this logic. I'm not trying to like down any kind of drug dealer, right? But understand the logic here, right? I know people that sell pot and have sold pot, right? And really believed in marijuana. You see where I'm going with this? Like some Grateful Dead-like people that would sell you pot and go, I fucking love pot. It should be legalized. We should all be smoking it. They really believe that in their heart. I've never met a heroin dealer that said, this fucking heroin, I got my mom on it. I got my sister on it. I use it. The whole family's into it. It's a beautiful thing. It brings us together. You see what I'm saying? Like, marijuana doesn't kill anybody. The only way that marijuana can kill you is if 500 pounds falls on top of your head. That's the only recording death of What's that? It's the only recorded death in marijuana. So, besides that death, right, heroin kills people all the fucking time. So, I'm thinking from a perspective of a heroin dealer, right? If you have to sell drugs in the inner city, there's all kinds of options. You can sell Xanax, you can sell marijuana, right? You can sell ketamine, you can sell Molly, right? There's all kinds of options of what drugs you can sell. So, what type of person that you would think would decide out of all the drugs that I can sell to make a living here, I'm going to pick out this one here called the heroin. What can we kind of surmise about that person? They don't give a fuck about people. They don't give a fuck about people. I'm just being honest. You follow my logic? Look, I understand if you grew up in the inner city and you don't got any good clothes and you have to eat really shitty government cheese while you want to sell some weed so you can wear nicer clothes and eat some McDonald's. I get that. I'm not saying it's right, but I get that. I don't understand why you got to fucking kill people and make a few dollars to have a nice BMW and drive around with other people's deaths on your mind. I'm telling you, people that sell heroin got really bad karma behind them. Just making a point. Observation. All right? I'm really glad you're here. Proud of your clean time, too. How about you, sir? I've been praying for you, man. Thank God you're here and alive. Fantastic, Zach. Glad you're here. Where have you been, man? In jail and rehab. Okay. Which one first? Jail. How long? I got bonded out in 10 days. I haven't gotten sentenced yet. Go through withdrawals in jail? So please tell people what it feels like to go through heroin withdrawals in jail. First you sleep on a concrete. Uh, you know, it's like you pretty much got the flu and then you puke in and you don't eat anything for the longest time. You don't sleep. There's no clock to even look at. There's, you know, I don't know. It's just... Is it bad? Yeah, let's just say I wasn't ready to stop. Okay. Do they give you anything for your withdrawals? Do they give you any medication or anything? They offer Pepno Bismol. Wow. That's actually new. They offered before nothing. 
says if the debts even tell the clinic you want them. All right. So how many days of misery did you endure while you were in jail? About six. Okay. And then by the seventh day you begin feeling better? Yeah. And the tenth day you're bounded out. Where do you go to rehab at? Uh, first, I went to Sherry McCollum. Okay. And that was all like people sent there from jail, so there was a lot of dope dealers there trying to get out of dope case. Right. So I left that place in like three days, and then went back out and used for four days. Okay. Then went back to Brighton. At first, I was just there to make a try to look good at court, and I was going to leave. And then I don't know what happened. I just, I just don't want to do this shit anymore. Thank you. Was Mike Briskbrook in there? Yeah. You talked to him? Yeah, he likes you. He's a close friend of mine. Yeah. Tell you any stories about himself? Oh, of course. Tell me one story about Mike Risk. <laughs> All right, I'll tell you the funny one. He said he was in his rehab, and uh, he was, you know, they would just give him, like, a jug of water, and, like, you had no bathroom in the room or whatever. And he was detoxing so bad for, like, days and days, and on the first day, he thought he could get up and go do something, and went downstairs with his pool table, and he shit his pants and went up back to the room and put the pants in the ceiling because he didn't know where else to fucking put them. And his roommate comes in like, said, fuck this fuck, I don't know. <laughs> he's, he's a badass, though, man. He's been in a lot of fights. He's a gifted fighter. Yeah, he's a funny guy. He killed uh, two people with his bare hand. I know. Killed one guy in prison, and he killed one guy on the streets that owed him money. Yeah, you, you ever tell you about the genie tattoo that he had? No, tell me about the genie tattoo. So in prison, the Italians would call him the genie, and they'd say, genie, make a motherfucker disappear. <laughs> He's a special person. He's got like 20, what, two years sober now? Yeah, 22, 23. Yeah, and remember, he was told by everyone on staff and therapists, they told Mike that he would never get sober. It's important to hear that part of the story. He was told explicitly, people like you, Mike, yeah, you guys never get sober. You're a complete antisocial personality disorder person. You've killed two people with your bare hands. You will never be sober. And so people can beat the odds. That's the coolest part about his story. What concerns you about your heroin usage, if anything? Um, just the shit that I started doing. Like, I've seen friends die. Do you want to do 10 more years of this, catching charges, going to jail, detoxing, getting involved, going to rehab, getting out, mom and dad trust you, mom and dad don't trust you, shoot heroin, say you're sorry, go to rehab, go to jail. Do you want to do 10 years of this? No, I'm straight with stopping now. Cool. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. If it was in your destiny to use heroin the rest of your life, you wouldn't have this many charges and these many problems. I'm just glad you're here. I'm glad you're alive. We're all worried about you. I got many phone calls from your mom. We said a lot of prayers to have you here today. I'm, I'm over the fucking moon today just seeing you here alive and sober. I couldn't get any fucking happier. Yeah, I've had a meeting every day. Yeah, this is like Christmas for me. Now you tell me that and I got fucking more frosting on my cake. Thank you very much. <laughs> really glad everybody's here. Thanks everybody for sharing. And, uh, we're going to talk about peer pressure and how that plays a role in addiction, okay? It's important to understand more psychology-type stuff, all right? And so we're going to talk about these things. Does anybody know why resentments, angers, and fears are bad for people that are trying to stay sober or for people that are in recovery? Why, 
in resentments, angers, and fears prevent a person from staying sober? Anybody have an idea or a theory about that? Tanya, tell me something that's bad about having resentments. Why are those bad when you're trying to stay sober? You resent your mom or you resent your boyfriend or you resent people. Why is it a bad idea to focus on that? And oftentimes those resentments, if you're resenting people that were actually even bad to you, though, it takes away your emotional energy, right? Yeah. If I'm constantly focused on the past, see, resentments work like this, okay? Resentments are all about the past. So if I resent my father, resent my childhood, resent the girlfriend that cheated on me, and all I do is think about that all day long, what begins to happen to me physically and emotionally? I can get anxious, I can get depressed, I can begin to feel really uncomfortable, so guess what I'm going to want to do? Make those feelings go away, right? So resentments of the past have to be dealt with, you know, through a tool we call acceptance, right? you got to basically accept that those things happen to you. And then we call, you know, using resolution. If you went through something bad, the way you get even with those people that mistreated you is by being even better than you ever expected, like Mike Brisk did. Went through all kinds of shit. Guys in Aryan Nations told Mike Risk to give them a pack of cigarettes every day. He goes, I'm not going to give you a pack of cigarettes every day. They said, not a problem. We're going to fucking kill you. So like, all right, go ahead and kill me. So the leader of that little Aryan Nations group saw him in the yard of Jackson Prison and stuck Mike Risk with a screwdriver in his stomach. And before he could pull that screwdriver up to kill Mike Risk, Mike Risk, having been trained in Krav Maga, locked the guy up, dropped down and snapped his neck and broke it. That guy's not around anymore. Genie made him disappear. So, but acceptance and resolution of the past, you have to leave that shit alone, right? Otherwise it has power over you. So what's bad about anger? Why should we not be focused on making ourselves angry all day long? Why is that a bad idea? Well, anger is in the present, right? Is it easier to stay sober when you're not so angry? So don't think about things that make you angry if you can, right? And so the way you get rid of anger is through, basically, gratitude. Think about all the things that you're grateful for. Like Zach probably thinks he's grateful for his freedom, grateful for the food he gets to eat, grateful for the love of his family. And as you focus on things that you're grateful for and identify people that love and care about you, you have less anger, it's easier to stay sober. Is that making sense? What about fear? Why is fear a bad thing to have when you're trying to stay sober? Remember, fear can stand for false evidence appearing real. Why is fear a bad thing for someone that's trying to stay sober? No one's got a theory? Zach, you got a theory on that? Because you know it'll take the fear away. Right. You're exactly right. Fear is based on the future. So how do you get rid of fear? Ask anybody that goes to church, they'll tell you. Have faith. Someone said, I'm not sure if I can stay sober for 30 days. may not work for me. I said, that's not a problem. You don't have any faith? He said, no. This will borrow some of mine. I know you can do this. I see other people do this. As long as you go to me every day, you'll do this. You can borrow somebody else's faith. Resentments, angers, and fears help you back from reaching their full potential. Acceptance, resolution, gratitude, and love, and faith help people reach their full potential. Is that making sense? All right, cool. Who wants to read Understanding Peer Pressure, the first page? 
Neither volunteer fortune favors the bold. Thank you, Zach. Scientists and researchers are always trying to find, figure out how people think and what motivates them. They realize that humans are vulnerable to all types of peer pressure and that pressure will influence their decision making. This is obvious and clear to companies that advertise their products. They know that commercials work and that that's why they spend billions of dollars advertising. So psychologists are able to demonstrate social and peer, social and peer pressure with a fun experiment. So why do people spend so much money on commercials? Because they work. Persuasion happens over time. The first time you see a commercial for a cheeseburger, you may not buy a cheeseburger. But when you see that commercial about 200 times, you might decide that you want to have a cheeseburger. Is that making sense? Persuasion occurs over time. It's cumulative. How about the next paragraph, Zach? You get 10 average adults in a room with scientists. The scientist in the white jacket then tells the people that they are going to be, there's going to be an experiment. The goal of the experiment is to determine if the effect of rap music on people's ability to measure things. The four subjects are going to have to listen to four hours of horrible rap music. Not the kind on MTV2, but the kind that's on YouTube. That's right, unsigned, no talent, white kids trying to get noticed. That sounds horrible. Did, did you type this? <laughs> of course I did. <laughs> the ten subjects will have to listen to four hours of some of the worst rapping ever created on Earth. Then they will determine whether or not rap music has any effect on someone's ability to measure things. You guys understand the premise here? Okay, please continue. The side note is this. Nine of the adults know that this is not the purpose of the study. Right. Those nine people know that they have been instructed to lie and say a wrong measurement each time. Person number 10 has no idea what's going on. They honestly believe that the purpose of the experiment is to determine the effect of rap music on people's ability to measure things. Yep, and they got a ruler that's 12 inches, and they got a dinner dish that's 12 inches, and that's now for the fun. Who wants to read page two? Need a volunteer. Everyone's so shy today. Thank you, Keith. <clears throat> Realize this. Each person measures the dish, uh, dish with a ruler. Uh, every one of the nine people says out loud, the dish is 11 inches. Huh. Uh, three, uh, each of the nine people is lying. They're fucking lying. Please continue. Uh, so what happens when uh, person number 10 is asked to measure the dish? He looks concerned. He looks puzzled, and then he says, 11 inches. He knows, this, uh, he, uh, he knows it isn't true, uh, but does it anyway. Why? When asked after the experiment, person number 10 states things such as, I couldn't believe I was right and everyone else was wrong. I didn't trust myself. I didn't want uh, other people to be upset with me. I didn't want other people to feel bad. I thought it was the best way to go with the flow. Okay, anybody ever feel that way when they're even younger? Let's all be honest. Yes, everyone's felt that way before. Please continue, Keith. When the experiment is repeated, uh, this result happened 80% of the time. Wow. Sadly, 80% uh, of the individuals now, who are now uh, number 10 in the test, say something and uh, do something that is wrong. They go against their gut instinct. They go against what is right. However, remarkably, 20% of the time, some people in the experiment don't do that. They have courage. They say, you guys are all crazy. It's 12 inches. Can't you see that? It's obvious. Wow, please continue. Uh, the same thing happens when young people and even adults are around drugs and alcohol. Their friends say things like, it's not going to hurt you. Everyone's doing it. Just try it once. Uh, what are you, a chicken? 
<laughs> what a chicken. Yeah. Um, it takes courage to do the right thing. You have to be brave to stand up for yourself. Nowadays, America needs more lions and less sheep running around. Ask yourself, do I want to be a weak-willed sheep or do I want to be known as a lion? So thoughts on that. 80% of the time that people are going to lie just to get along and, and be able to say that, oh, maybe I'm the one that doesn't get this right. We are a tribal people. We want to get along with other people. It's been programmed into our DNA to not be that person that creates drama and problems when possible, right? If we were constantly arguing with each other back in those primitive days, we wouldn't be able to hunt down any, any uh, mammoths or whatever the fuck we were hunting back then. I don't know. Saber-toothed tigers, what did we kill back then? But anyway, we couldn't, cut, we couldn't kill those things because we wouldn't have any teamwork, right? And so teamwork is very important, and getting along is very, very important. It runs through our DNA. And so when you're young, it's even more intense to be able to fit in. It affects our clothing. It affects what we listen to with regards to music. It has all kinds of effects. Is that making sense? And so with this being said, um, how would you deal with peer pressure right now? How would you deal with it right now? If someone was to offer you heroin or offer you Oxycontin or offer you marijuana, how would you deal with it? Knowing what you know about peer pressure, it's still hard to say no. Let's just be honest. But you have the right to say no because guess what? No matter how much those people claim to care about you, they will not trade places with you in that jail cell if you get caught. They won't trade places with that casket if you overdose, right? And it's all about living for yourself. The U.S. military takes this um, group think and peer pressure is so seriously that when they make a command decision at a very high level, they require other people that are in that command decision group to write a reason why they shouldn't do what they're about to do. So if we have a decision we're going to invade Syria today at 5 o'clock, and everyone says, that's a great idea, Raj, you're so fucking intelligent, and I give you a piece of paper and say, give me five reasons why we shouldn't do it. That allows you to be honest, because then you're saying, oh, he told me to say five reasons why I shouldn't do it, and those reasons might actually make some sense. Otherwise, we go into that whole groupthink mode. A lot of people began using drugs because a bunch of clowns were around a table and told them it was a good idea. You follow what I'm saying? And so this, this peer pressure runs deep in our society, especially in America. There's something cool about this coolness factor about using drugs that are illegal. It has status and clout. For some people, it gives them a sense of identity. And so when you put down your drugs and your alcohol, for a lot of people, you lose your sense of identity, and it's scary. You know, but truth be told, you can do this. Everybody in this room deserves to have a good life. It's always darkest before the dawn, and if you only walk on sunny days, you will not reach your destination. So keep moving forward. Please don't fall into peer pressure, and please put a team behind yourself. Get phone numbers in your phone of people that you can call. If you're getting some ideas or some squirrely thinking, you have someone you can call that's going to be an ally that's going to slow down your thinking or maybe even give you some good advice. Is that making sense? Any comments or questions? Do you guys understand more about peer pressure now after the handout? Do you guys understand more about this global view of reality and who borderline personality disorder people are? And the goal is to basically be more honest. Sometimes it is my fault and sometimes it's somebody else's fault, but most of the time, it's a combination of faults, how we got here. Is that making sense? All right, so we're not going to have Recovery College next Tuesday because of Labor Day. We are going to be on after the next Tuesday after that. So have a great Labor Day weekend, and please stay safe, all right? Thank you for your time.